Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ. On the second Sunday night of each month, I present the Bible's answers to questions submitted by members and guests of the Franklin Church. In December of 2004, a very difficult question was submitted. What is the baptism for the dead mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29? The lesson you are about to hear contains my thoughts on the matter right now. I certainly hope this lesson will benefit and edify you. May it be a starting place for your own study as you strive to answer this Bible question. On the second Sunday night of each month, we set aside our time together here as we worship God, as we open His Word to answer questions that have been submitted by members, sometimes by guests. That's what we're going to be doing tonight. Tonight, we're going to be taking a look at what I consider to be, or have considered, one of the more difficult, most difficult passages in the Scripture. We're going to be taking a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29, we learn about baptism for the dead. But even after reading the verse, I think we call the question, what does it mean? Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? This is one of those passages that over the years I've constantly gone back to and studied some and read some and looked at commentaries and talked to folks. And, and by the time I was done, typically I would have to just say, well, you know, I know what it doesn't mean. I'm not completely sure what it does mean. And that kind of answer just never satisfies me. However, a couple of years ago while studying this passage, in my mind, things just kind of fell into place. And so right now, I'm very comfortable with what I believe this passage means, and I want to share that with you tonight. However, having said that, I full well know that another couple of years, I might come back and read 1 Corinthians 15, 29, and having studied it some more and learned some more about the Scripture, realize that I'm all wrong. And so, let's please don't view this tonight as me saying, here's the definitive exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29. Rather, let's just view this as a jumping off place, something for further discussion, for us to consider just where I am right now on this passage that I plan on studying more, and hopefully you can take what you hear tonight and study some more as we begin to examine 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29. As difficult and as complex as this passage seems, my hope is to make this very simple for us tonight. My plan, though it may seem at at various times complex, is to just simply take the four main terms in this verse and take a look at what those terms mean within the context of this chapter. And having understood those terms, when we're done, I hope that we can come back to the question as a whole, put those terms together, and figure out exactly what Paul was asking and exactly what Paul's point is. Before we begin to do that, would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you. We recognize that you are the great and merciful benefactor. You are the judge and the creator. You are the redeemer and the savior. Father, you have loved us even though we are unworthy and we thank you so greatly for that. Father, we thank you for giving us your word that we can study and learn and understand your will. However, we have understood that that doesn't mean that everything in your word is easy or simple. We recognize that you have written your word in such a way as to challenge us, to make us dig and to understand what you have presented to us. And we pray that you would be with us tonight as we study your word in one of the places that we have considered difficult, that our hearts will be open to your will, that we will have greater understanding, 
and that what we study tonight will draw us closer to you, will fill us with hope, and help us submit to you as our lives continue. Father, we praise you and we thank you. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. As we answer this question, the very first thing we need to recognize is the context of this chapter in general. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29 is not written in a vacuum. It's not just there somewhere talking about baptism for the dead. It's written within a chapter that is talking about resurrection. As the chapter began in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, Paul said, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. He begins by talking about the gospel, what the core message of the gospel is. And he says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. As he continues on in the next few verses, he talks about eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after He was resurrected from the dead. Having started down this path of discussing the gospel, and that the the heart of the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in verse 12, he brings in another issue. He shifts, based on this discussion of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to address some false teaching that was going on here in Corinth. And in verse 12, he says, Now, if Christ is preached, then He has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In Corinth, it seems that some of the brethren had begun to teach that there was and is no resurrection. That when you're dead, that's it, it's over, you're dead. The remainder of this chapter is answering that false teaching. He gives several different approaches, but the thing that we need to understand is that when we come to 1 Corinthians 15:29, whatever our final decision is, or final discovery, or final understanding is about 1 Corinthians 15:29, it has it has to fit within the context of responding to this idea that there's no resurrection. That's why Paul made this statement. That's why he asked this question because he was making a logical point about resurrection from the dead, and that it, there is and there will be a resurrection. That's, that's kind of our, our guiding post as we take a look at this, because so many of the different options we have are ruled out by recognizing that Paul is defending the resurrection. So whatever our decision is when we're done, it has to fit in with that context. I want to begin by taking a look at the word those. Those who are baptized for the dead. What will those do? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Who, who is this those? That to me is really the biggest question that I've struggled with for years. And one of the things that, that, that I've done that has helped me, at least provided some satisfaction in my mind, is to just back up to the beginning of the chapter and start looking at the pronouns. And, and trying to figure out, well, who are the possibilities? Who could those possibly be? And see if we can whittle away at them until we come up with a choice. We begin in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1, and we'll notice that Paul talks about, I make known to you, that's Paul, and you, that's the Corinthians. Then we take a look at verse 10 and verse 11. 
He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believe. He's got them and we. Them are the other apostles here. We, in this context, was all of the apostles. So we taught, so you believed. You was the Corinthians in verse 11. In verse 12, however, he distinguishes some folks in Corinth. He says, now if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some among you. There were a group of Corinthian Christians that were teaching no resurrection from the dead. We move on to verse 14. And the text there says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Our preaching here is the apostles going after, up to verse 10 where he said, so we preach, so you believe. So here's our and your. Verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Here again, we is the apostles. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So this is what we've taught. If we're wrong, you are still in your sins. And then in verse 19, he says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now, following the pronouns, I'm convinced that the we here refers to the apostles. That they had given up so much more than the others as far as their teaching that specifically and directly he's actually referring to the apostles here. It is possible that he is combining the I and the you and referring to all Christians. Certainly, the point is the same that whether we are apostles or not, if we're hoping in Christ and there is no resurrection, then we are to be pitied. The apostles, perhaps, who had done so much more work, so much sacrifice, were to be even more pitied. As we've taken a look at these pronouns, then we finally come to verse 29, and it has that pronoun, those or they. Well, who is this? Let's consider some of the possibilities based on the other groups of people we've looked at through this chapter. Is it possible that it refers to all Christians? Well, it's possible. However, if Paul were going to refer to all Christians, if he is a Christian, what's he going to say? Is he going to say those? No, he's going to say us or we. I think that demonstrates that he's not referring to all Christians. Well, Another option, what about all apostles? Well, he's not going to say that because he's already demonstrated several times as he's referring to all of the apostles, he's going to refer to himself as part of that. We. Now, it is possible other apostles. However, keeping in mind that what he pointed out earlier is that what the other apostles teach is what he also teaches. And what the other apostles do is what he also does. Therefore, I don't believe he's talking about the other apostles either. Another possibility. What about all Corinthians? Wouldn't he the Corinthians? Because if he was going to say to all of the Corinthians, what would he say? He'd say, you. Why then are you being baptized? Because that's how he's referred to them throughout the entire chapter. Finally, what about, what about this possibility? What about non-Christians? There are some that suggest it's possible that there were some non-Christian groups that were getting baptized for the dead, and Paul was referring to them, and the Corinthians would know about that, and they understood, and, and he was just making a point. However... The problem that I have with that is we've got to keep in mind what is Paul's major point. Paul's major point is there is a resurrection. Is there anything that any pagan non-Christian groups were doing that would have any type of bearing whatsoever on proving that there was a resurrection? 
Absolutely not. There's nothing that any non-Christian pagan group would have been doing that would have impacted this issue. Paul, in striving to defend the resurrection, would not go to groups that are not Christians, that have no concept of resurrection in Christ, to defend that. So I would suggest to you that non-Christians doesn't fit. What then is the answer? Well, when we take a look at these different groups of people, we've rolled out all but this one right here, these false teachers. As he starts talking to those who believe the truth about the resurrection, he refers to those who do not believe the truth about the resurrection. He says, those people, what are they doing being baptized for the dead? We ruled out all the other groups. It's not just the Corinthians. It's not the apostles. It's not non-Christians. Well, who, who, who would this those be? In the context, I believe that what's left for us is that he's referring to these Christians in Corinth that taught there was no resurrection, he's asking, why are they being baptized for the dead? Those. Who is it? The false teachers who are teaching no resurrection. Now, I know that that brings some questions into our mind, but let's hold on to those for a moment and let's continue on. And I think as we move along through the lesson, we'll be able to see how all this fits together. So if those are the false teachers that teach there is no resurrection, getting baptized for the dead. What about baptism? What is this baptized? What does this refer to? Now, in my years as a Christian, I've heard several sermons that have talked about how baptism and baptized are used in the Scripture. Perhaps you have heard these sermons as well. And if you have, you've heard sermons on the seven baptisms of the Bible. Anybody heard a sermon like that? Yeah, we've heard the seven baptisms of the Bible. Of course, the one baptism... The most important one, the one that Paul is referring to in Ephesians 4 and verse 4 when he talked about one baptism, is the baptism into Christ for the remission of our sins. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, we know that the Scripture says, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of his sins. Romans chapter 6 describes that baptism further. In Romans chapter 6, Beginning at verse 3, Paul said, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Another baptism in the Scripture is that the baptism of John. Acts chapter 19 and verse 3. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 3, the Scripture there says, as Paul as Paul came into Ephesus, he asked these men that he had found, he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. This was the baptism that John preached while he was here. And Paul said in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus, and encouraged them to be baptized into Christ. That, that first baptism we talked about. A third baptism in the Scripture is the baptism into Moses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 2. It says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Referring to the Israelites who went through the Red Sea and figuratively baptized into Moses. Then we have the baptism of fire. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. As John was preaching and foretelling that, that someone greater than himself would come in, he says in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, As for me... I baptize you with water for repentance. That's, you know, that's, that's John's baptism again. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not to fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and 
fire. So within this context, we have the baptism of fire, and we also have the baptism of the Holy Spirit mentioned here. Then we have the baptism of suffering. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 38. Mark chapter 10 and verse 38. If I can get to it. Mark chapter 10 and verse 38. But Jesus said to them, and this is, remember, He's talking to James and John. They said, can we be at your right and left hands? And as Jesus was talking to them, He said in verse 38, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to Him, We're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. My understanding of this text is that the cup that they're drinking, the baptism through which they're going, is not an issue of of a literal cup drinking, or the water baptism that they would go through for the forgiveness of their sins, but rather the idea of, as Jesus prayed in the garden, let this cup pass from me, the suffering that he would go through, the torment, the agony, the persecution. And he's pointing out that John and James would, in fact, drink that same cup. They would go through that same baptism. They would be immersed in suffering just as he was. However, of course, he goes on to say, but what's on my right and left hand, it's not mine to give away. But that baptism, I'm convinced, is a baptism of suffering. Immersion and suffering. Persecution. And then we've got, seventh, the baptism for the dead, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29. If you've heard those sermons, you've, you've gone through it. Of course, it always ends with pointing out that this, this is the one baptism into Christ through which we enter Christ's body. We have the forgiveness of our sins. It's the one baptism that all people, if they want to be saved, have to go through. But have you ever considered, as you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 29, and listen to this list, do you recognize that an assumption is being made once we get to 1 Corinthians 15, 29? That assumption is that in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, when Paul says people are being baptized for the dead, that he's actually talking about something completely different than these other six. But I have a problem with that. And the reason I have a problem with that is if Paul is, and and it's possible, it's possible that Paul is talking about something completely different than these other six. There's just not not anything about these other six that are related to this. This is just some other baptism that the Corinthians would know about that we have no knowledge of. The problem I have with that is, is that this is the only verse that talks about it, and there's absolutely nothing else in Scripture that gives us any idea as to what it would be and what this baptism would remotely be about. If there is some baptism for the dead that Christians are being involved in, and I have to assume Christians because what the non-Christians do doesn't matter as far as resurrection. So here are Christians being involved in some other baptism that they're going through, and Paul's saying, why are they doing that? What's the point of that? And yet, as we look at the Scripture, it doesn't tell us anything else about that. Who's supposed to do it? Who are they supposed to do it for? Into what are they baptized to accomplish this? There's just nothing about that in Scripture. And when I think about that, I remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You remember what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29 another baptism which we can be involved in, certainly it's not going to be a part of the one baptism, we would say, if it's something different, but we can do it. It's a good work. Well, the Scripture doesn't tell us anything about it, other than some folks were doing it. And I have a serious problem with that. That doesn't fit in my mind with what God does in Scripture. 
is that when there is a good work, he equips us for that work, and he explains it to us. If this baptism is something different completely from all these others, we've got a baptism that we can do, but we don't know anything about it. That causes me to say, you know what, maybe this baptism actually is just a form of one of these, but it's for the dead. And we're, working, we're going to get to for the dead, what that means in a minute. So let's work our way back, and let's think about it. Can this be related to any of these others? Well, I don't believe it's the baptism of suffering, and the reason why I wouldn't say that is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 30, Paul then immediately, after asking this question, why are those being baptized for the dead, he says in verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? Because the suffering is something that Paul was involved in as well. If he was talking about a baptism of suffering, he would include himself in it because he was going through that, just as James and John did. But whatever's going on in verse 29 is something that somebody other than Paul is being involved in. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, I don't believe that fits because one of the things we recognize through Scripture, the two times that we see this demonstrated in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10, baptism of the Holy Spirit was not something that people go do. It's something that is done to them when the Holy Spirit sees fit. And so you wouldn't have those who are going being baptized for the dead. Same thing with the baptism of fire. But also take a look, by the way, at Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. Far too often folks equate the baptism of fire and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think in the context, though, we recognize the difference. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, he says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Here within the context of Matthew 3.11, we find out what this baptism of fire is. What is Jesus going to do with this fire? He's going to burn up the chaff. This is a baptism of judgment. That those who have not submitted to Jesus Christ will be burnt up with fire. Baptism of fire. It's not, not related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's something else. Baptism into Moses, we can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and as we read that earlier, we recognize that referred to the Israelites who went through the Red Sea with Moses. doesn't refer to any Christians today. Baptism of John, Acts chapter 19, we read through there, we recognize that that was something that Paul was steering them clear of. They're not getting baptized into John's baptism anymore. That's not something that Christians were supposed to be doing anymore. And so that leads us just finally, baptism into Christ. And I believe what we actually find is that really we're just talking about six baptisms. And that this baptism for the dead is actually being baptized for the remission of sins into Christ for the dead. He says, why are they doing this? Why are those being baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins for the dead? Why are they doing that? I want you to think about this, something that might tie some apron strings together, some loose strings together for us on this. When you take a look at baptism into Christ for the remission of sins, what is the real benefit of baptism into Christ for the remission of our sins? Is the real benefit something in this life? What's the real benefit? Why did you get baptized? Anybody get baptized because they wanted to be resurrected and go to heaven? Absolutely. Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Beginning at verse 9, he talks about how much he wants to be found in Christ. 
Philippians 3.9. So that he, he counted, verse 8 said he gave up everything, counted as rubbish, that he could gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, on the basis of faith. Why? Why do I want to be in him? Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have obtained it. He's here in resurrection from the dead. He's not talking about being brought out of death of sin and into life, as happened when he was baptized. He's talking about something he's looking forward to in the future. Why does he want to be in Christ? Because he's looking forward to the day when he's going to be dead. And he wants to be resurrected to life. But we couple that with Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Baptism into Christ is to benefit us when we're dead. And Paul's asking, why are these guys being baptized for the dead if there's no resurrection? Why are they doing that? Keep in mind one other point that will help us as we continue on in our last two terms here. That baptism only benefits the one who is doing it. There's nothing in Scripture that says, I can get baptized and you can be saved. In fact, there are Scriptures that point out that the righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. There's nothing I can do. There's no work I can do that benefits you eternally in that sense of I do it and you get saved by it. It just doesn't happen. So as we keep this in mind, what is baptism for? It's to benefit us when we are dead. What about this term for? Very simply. The English word for in this text is not the same as in Acts 2.38. Acts 2.38, the Greek term is ice, unto, or toward. Here it's the Greek term hooper. I guess is how you would pronounce that. I don't know. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. That same term is used to talk about us praying. It says that we're supposed to pray for our enemies. For our enemies. On behalf of our enemies. In John chapter 13, verses 37 and 38. John chapter 13, verses 37 and 38. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. For the sake of, on behalf of. Here, what we've got is, Paul is asking, why are those people who teach no resurrection being baptized for the remission of their sins into Christ on behalf of, or for the sake of, the dead? Why are they doing that? In order to benefit the dead. Well, what's that mean for them to be dead? What is this dead? Well, the term here used in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29 is also not used in a vacuum. But before we examine the term itself, let's just get rid of some assumptions that we might make. 
There are some who suggest that this actually refers to particular dead individuals. My question would be, which ones? And how would you know? Is it referring to relatives? There are some who suggest that you're allowed to go get baptized for your dead relatives who never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and so they couldn't be saved by it. What about friends? If I can do it for my great aunt Sally, why can't I do it for my best friend Joe? What about those who never heard the gospel? You know, we're always we're worried about those folks. There was that transition period. Maybe we could get baptized for them. Or maybe it's for those who died on the way to the baptistry. That would, boy, that would help with some questions, wouldn't it? What happens to those who died on the way to the baptistry? Well, I'll just go get baptized for them. But my question is, how would you know and to what passage would you go to prove this? Remember what we learned in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The Scripture provides us with equipping and authority for every good work. If this passage is really telling us that we could go get baptized for the remission of our sins for somebody else who are dead, then why doesn't any other passage in here tell us how to do it? There's not one. That, that, that tells me something. That's not what this is about. If it were about that, we would have equipping for that. And it would tell us how to do it and who would be benefited exactly and... and, and when to do it, and all of those kind of things. Just like baptism for the remission of sins for our sins is taught and explained very clearly. So it's not about this. Let's get rid of those assumptions. But then we take a look at the term. The term in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 29, the root word is necros, but the form of it here is necrone. And it's not used in a vacuum, as I said moments ago. It's actually used elsewhere in this chapter, as distinguished from another term that's also used in this chapter. If you look back in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12, it says, Now, if Christ is priest and he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Here, what you, and, and also notice verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. And what we find in this text is that this term, necron, is used to refer to the state of being dead. Or maybe more accurately, just that idea of the grouping of those who are dead. And it's not referring just to particular dead individuals, but rather from that group, the resurrection from the dead. There's this group of the dead, the state of being dead, and here a person is raised from that. In this text, another form of the word is used in verse 16, uh, verse 15 and 16. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If, in fact, the dead, and that word there is necroi, are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Here we've got more of the idea of dead individuals. If dead individuals aren't raised, and so we see the difference between the group of the dead from which someone would be raised versus the individual dead who is raised from that group. In other words, Christ would be the necroi who was raised from the necrome. And that's, that, that, this is the term that's used in 1 Corinthians 15.29, talking about that group of the dead, or the state of being dead. Therefore, then we've got Paul asking, why are these folks being baptized, these people, people who teach there's no resurrection, why are they being baptized for the remission of their sins into Christ, which only benefits us to give us resurrection, on behalf of those who are just going to be dead? all they're going to be is dead, why are they doing this? Which leads us to our final conclusion about this, that we recognize that Paul is asking rhetorical questions. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 30, he goes on to ask another one. He says, why then are we in danger all the time? A rhetorical question is a question that is given that is supposed to be so obvious to the reader that it doesn't have to actually literally be answered. And Paul's point here, once we recognize, and I have no doubt that the Corinthians understood this easily, because they knew all the answers to all the questions that we have to ask about it, all the things that even still might be left in the dark as we're speculating and moving our way through here. They knew all the answers to those questions. But So when they heard this question, they understood exactly what Paul was saying. And it didn't have to be answered. They realized this is, this is odd. Why would these people who believe there is no resurrection from the dead be baptized for the remission of their sins into Christ when the only real benefit of that is that something would happen after this life? Because if all we're going to do is die and be dead... Why bother with this? In fact, he goes on to drive the point even further. In verse 31, he says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I had in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Because if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Why would I get baptized if I'm just hoping for some benefit in this life? Because Paul says, I've seen what happens when you get baptized for the remission of your sins in this life. You have to fight with folks. They get mad at you. They throw you before the lions. And if all I've got is hope in this life, that would be ridiculous. I might as well go ahead and eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow I'm going to die, and then I'm just going to be dead. What is Paul's question? Paul's question is, why are these people getting baptized into Christ if they have no hope of resurrection through Christ? What? is the point. In fact, he carries it further, why would I do anything to serve the Lord Jesus Christ if when I die, I'm just going to be dead? Because when I serve God in this life, it just makes other people mad at me. My life would be a lot easier if I just quit serving God. But I'm serving God because I believe there's going to be a resurrection. In the end, Paul's point is, that these folks are teaching no resurrection. Their life and their actions actually have contradicted their doctrine. And it's amazing how often that is the case, how many false doctrines people will argue doctrinally, but when you get down to their practice, they demonstrate that they don't really believe that. And that's what Paul is pointing out here. They may be arguing that doctrinally, but they don't really believe that, because if they really believed it, why get baptized? Why do anything? It contradicts. Now, what's the importance of this passage for us? I think there's a threefold importance of this passage to us. Number one, it gives us hope for the resurrection. Here, Paul has demonstrated that there is a resurrection, and he has nailed it down. And he's pointed out that if there isn't a resurrection, why on earth would we get baptized? And what are they? Look at them. Even the folks who say there's no resurrection are out there getting baptized. Why are they doing that if they don't think there's a resurrection? We have hope of the resurrection. The second thing is it demonstrates we must not be in fellowship with false doctrine that leads to corrupt action. Very interestingly, there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, don't miss this. As he continued on, in verse 33, Paul said, Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Here's Paul's point. If you have folks that are teaching no resurrection... If they're going to be consistent, sooner or later, they're going to have to say how we live doesn't matter. You have to say that. Because if there's no, if, if there's no resurrection, then what I'm doing doesn't, doesn't matter. I might as well eat, drink, because tomorrow I'm going to die. 
Now, the folks who are teaching this, Paul says, demonstrates, they may not be corrupt right now, but if they continue with this teaching, they will become corrupt if they're going to maintain the consistency of their position. And so he warns, bad company corrupts good morals. His point to the Corinthians is if you keep allowing these folks to teach no resurrection, the morals there are going to go downhill. Because more and more people will believe it, and more and more people, in order to be consistent, will eventually say, it doesn't matter how I live. And one of the reasons that's important for us is because there are folks, in fact, brethren today, that teach there is no resurrection or no more resurrection. They teach that the resurrection occurred back in 70 A.D. And I don't know what their thought is about us and what's going to happen to us and what hope we have. But I tell you what, it's a dangerous thing. The folks are going to say that there's no resurrection for us. Because that's the only hope we have. That's why we got baptized into Christ. Because in Christ, we may attain the resurrection. And if we can't have resurrection, then there's no point to anything we do. The third import of this passage for us is it demonstrates that baptism is, in fact, necessary. Think about this for just a moment. The entire point behind Paul's statement is that baptism impacts whether or not we're resurrected. And if there is no resurrection, then why get baptized? Do you see what that demonstrates? That demonstrates that if there is a resurrection, we had better be baptized. Paul's entire point comes crumbling to the ground and is moot and is pointless if baptism does not impact whether or not we are resurrected to life. That's his whole point. These folks are being baptized in order to be resurrected when they believe there's no resurrection. If you believe there's a resurrection, don't make the opposite mistake. These folks made the mistake of believing there was no resurrection, but they got baptized anyway. Don't make the opposite mistake and say, well, I believe there's a resurrection, but I don't have to be baptized. Because what Paul's point demonstrates is baptism impacts whether or not we will be resurrected. If it's only a good thing, if it's only nice advice, if it's only an outward sign of inward grace, but you're already saved, and, and it doesn't matter whether or not you get baptized, you'll be resurrected anyway, then the passage is pointless. Paul demonstrates we've got to be baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins because that is how we attain the resurrection. I want to thank you for joining with the Franklin Church of Christ and me in this study of God's Word. I trust this lesson has been beneficial to you. Remember, my answers may not always be right, but God's answers always are. I pray we can continue to study God's Word and gain deeper understanding of every part of it. If someone has given you this lesson on a tape or a CD, I invite you to visit our website, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have several audio lessons as well as outlines you're free to download and study. If you have any questions about baptism, baptism for the dead, the resurrection, or about the Franklin Church of Christ, please contact us by calling 615-794-794. 2359 or visit our website. Again, that site is franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.